0: On today's episode, understanding FAI and labral tears with Lindsay Plass. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast. The podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers Happy New Year everyone, I have another exciting episode for you, uh, Hope you, hopefully you have recharged your batteries, I know I have, I've just been away at the beach for the last week or so and have come back and time to start recording, I've got some big um, exciting goals for 2022, the book is one of them <laughs> which I'll keep you updated on but I have a few other business ideas or Um, content creation ideas which are up my sleeve which I won't disclose just yet. I'll keep you hanging for those. Um, Today we have Lindsay Plass. I have a little bit of a bio on her. Um, Let me just pull that up and get you guys familiar with Lindsay before we bring her on. So Lindsay is a PT and also um, has competed as a four-year scholar athlete playing soccer. She had furthered her career and became furthered her PT career, and became a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist in 2016. She then completed the University of Chicago Medicine Orthopedic Manual Therapy Fellowship in 2019, and her clinical and research interests include treating runners and triathletes, especially people with chronic and persistent pain, and people with Femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI syndrome, uh, with or without labral tears. So she is an avid marathon runner and long course triathlete, and it is her own hip journey with FAI and labral tears which sparked her interest in helping others with the same hip issues and returning back to the sports they love. I'm not sure why I haven't done a hip issue or a hip... FAI Label Tear episode in the past, but Lindsay is a perfect person to have on. We have a very detailed discussion. I think it's a little bit technical at the start, uh, but definitely hang in there because it gets very interesting. A lot of misconceptions around this particular condition and how it's treated. So it's right up the alley in the Run, Run Smarter podcast episodes and can't wait for you guys to hear it. So let's take it away. Lindsay Plass, thanks for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: I'm not too sure why I haven't had a podcast episode on FAI and label tears before, because I know a lot of people have been asking for it. I think the... I don't really consider it as a a running condition, but a lot of runners have it. And so um, I'm glad that you're on here. I listened to you on another podcast and thought I need to have you on pretty much for your expertise, but also your backstory as well. So for those who aren't familiar with you, do you mind sharing who you are, where you're from and your experience um, with this particular condition?
1: Sure. So Like you said, my name is Lindsay Plas. I'm a physical therapist. I live in Chicago, Illinois. And I think um, the kind of thing I didn't anticipate when I was going through my physical therapy schooling was that one day I would, you know, actually become a patient. Um, So, (laughs) it was kind of when I found out that I had this hip with femoral acetabular impingement and a labral tear, which we'll get into, you know, in a little bit what that means. But that really changed the trajectory of my career as a physical therapist and has really given me kind of this unique ability, I think, to relate to other people who have it too. Um, So I think the the thing is about femoral acetabular impingement, which we can refer to as FAI, um, is that yes, a lot of runners have it and it's It's very common, but it's not always the reason someone is having pain. And Mm -hmm. so I think that that's, you know, something that can be helpful for runners to understand that just because you may have a hip that has FAI with or without a label tear, that that's not always, you know, something that's going to cause you pain or something that means you have to stop running.
0: Yeah. How far into your, like, how old were you when you first started noticing these particular symptoms and like what sort of activities were you participating in?
1: Yeah. So I graduated college back in 2009. So, and I played soccer at um, a division three school in Wisconsin called Carthage College. And, had no issues really, never really had any hip pain. And then after college, got into marathon running. And, um, you know, within the first five years after college, I ran six marathons. I had this goal to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Each race was getting closer and closer to that goal. And then in the meantime, you know, started my physical therapy schooling and graduated from Northwestern University in 2012. And then it was actually, um, I ran the Chicago Marathon that year, 2012. And then it was in 2013 that my hip had started hurting. So it was really like a novice clinician, you know, it was within like the first year or two of graduating PT school And so this was about seven years ago. Um, And I think the really cool thing, though, is that research and awareness on FAI and label tears has greatly changed for the better. I think when I was going through this, there was not a lot of information out there. And so I think when I say that it changed the trajectory of my career, I think that Part of what I've been able to do is kind of help spread awareness about FAI label tears and how runners that have hips with these conditions can still continue to run and, and do marathons and do whatever sport they like.
0: Mm. I, I totally agree with you because when I graduated from physiotherapy, it was 2012 and we had, if you want to be a private practice physio, we had this textbook which was um Bruckner and Khan um clinical exercise something or other and um, Peter Bruckner was the author and well, I think it was maybe the 2012 edition um didn't even have like FAI as a condition within that textbook and it wasn't until the later edition I think they brought out the later edition the following year, which did include FAI, but still that's 2012, 2013, that it wasn't even in this textbook, which we considered like the Bible for private practice physiotherapy. It had like all these conditions, exactly how to treat it, how to rehab it, what the management looked like, and just didn't exist in the the, the previous edition of that textbook when I graduated, and so... Totally agree. There was very little awareness and i um, glad that, you know, science and the awareness has now developed to the point where it is today. So I guess with these two conditions, this FAI and the labral tears, do you mind maybe explaining to the runners exactly what it is and what, I guess, what the pathology involves?
1: Yeah, so... FAI stands for femoral acetabular impingement, and then now we describe people with symptomatic FAI. So these are people that have hip pain, they have imaging findings that show the FAI, and they have with the clinical exam. So, you know, when the therapist is doing certain maneuvers with the hip. That produces their pain specifically. There's a test called the Fader test, F-A-D-I-R, where um, the therapist, you know, bends up the hip and internally rotates it, putting pressure on the groin. And if, you know, that's one of the clinical signs that someone may have FAI and a labral tear. And so now they're describing symptomatic FAI as FAI syndrome. So I think this is important because, you know, statistics show that close to 70% of people can have FAI and may not know it and may not have pain. Um, So I think a lot of the research and clinical applications have evolved to where we're starting to, decipher between symptomatic FAI and people who just happen to have it but don't have pain. And then and then there's further subcategories. So there's different kinds of hip impingement that can occur. So one kind of hip impingement is called CAM morphology. And so that's when you get changes to the head of the femur, which is the thigh bone. And so you get kind of this overgrowth of the bone on the head of the femur, and another you know interesting thing that's evolved over time with the research is even now um really delineating between primary cam morphology, which means that it just happened to occur during you know skeletal maturation as a physiological response, and then secondary cam morphology is actually related to when someone may have had an acute trauma um, or a fracture to the hip. And then the second kind of hip impingement involves pincer morphology. So this means you get over coverage of the femoral head by the acetabulum or the socket part of the hip. And now actually it's common that people can have both so like when i had my mri it showed that i had both cam and sensor morphology
0: Mm. i think it's good to i guess um highlight a few of these terminologies so when you're talking about the fai so the femoral acetabular impingement so the the femoral refers to the femur and you you Nicely described it as like a ball and socket joint. So the hip is like a ball and socket. And if someone were to, I guess, like make a fist that represents the ball and then place your other hand like covering that fist to represent the socket, what we're talking about is like an impingement in there somewhere. There's been some overgrowth in one of those, either the ball or the socket, which leads to that particular impingement. And so what you're saying is there's two different types. There's the cam, which is more, if you had that making the fist and the ball and socket, it's actually the ball in the ball and socket that has some sort of maybe bone overgrowth, but the pincer form is actually the socket that can actually have an overgrowth of bone. And like you said, there could be both presenting, but no matter what, if there's an overgrowth of bone, sometimes it can lead, if you move the, the ball and socket joint around, it can lead to some unnecessary impingement. Um, so the two, if there's an overgrowth of bone, those two can like kind of pinch together. But whether that pinch actually causes pain or not is a different discussion entirely. Um, did I, would I say that correctly? Would you want to add anything in with that?
1: Yes, that's correct. And then the other thing, too, we could discuss, so then the labrum. So the labrum is a ring of cartilage that follows the outside rim of the hip socket. And you can kind of think of it, if people are familiar to, like the meniscus of the knee. So the labrum of the hip, the role is to provide cushioning to the joint. And it kind of acts like a, a rubber seal, So like you just said, holding that femoral head securely in the socket. And as far as like a labral tear, I think that, yes, people with any sort of hip impingement can end up with a labral tear or a labral fraying if a certain part of the labrum, there's too much pressure on that part when the person is moving around and loading the hip. Um, Yes. So you can have these things, but then it may not be causing your pain. So I think that especially for runners um, where, you know, with running, we're not getting the hip into extreme ranges of motion, like the of running itself is not causing positions of hip impingement. So, you know, I think that when you have pain and you have these findings, you have to really identify, like, what are the muscular weaknesses that the person has? Because I know that that was certainly the case for me, that, you know, it actually came down to I needed to really strengthen my hip and ch- make some changes to my training. And that made my hip feel better, even though, you know, I still have the, the hip impingement, I still have the labral tear. But it's just no longer a limiting factor.
0: Would, so would you say that um, the likely causes within the running population, would you say that there is maybe a strength deficit or is there something to do with someone's running or their particular, um, the terrain that they're on or the type of running that they enjoy doing? Are there any particular causes that might lead to this condition?
1: Yeah. So I think with, with runners who end up getting this condition or end up getting hip pain and they have imaging and they, they find out that they have these findings. I think though, and, and the research is actually supporting this, that actually these changes in the hip, particularly the, the cam morphology actually is developing earlier on during adolescence and when the growth plate is open. And so, this becomes the big question is, so then if these changes are occurring during adolescence and during puberty and just like me, then the person can go on to complete high-level sports and athletics even throughout college, then it's kind of like, well, what's changing, you know, in our 20s and 30s that then is is causing these hips to become painful? And so I think that really what it comes down to is that it actually has more to do with training habits and kind of the the loading you're placing on the, the hip. And I think that that's, you know, one reason why I think most people with FAI and labral tears who want to get back to running can. Once they have a training routine that is really sustainable and, and they're not over-training or under-training. Yeah, I think, uh, like long story short, I think it actually comes down to more the training factors that play a role in this than the actual, you know, bony changes of the hips.
0: Mm. Because like you said, there, there may be 70% of the population that do have this particular bone overgrowth or some sort of impingement that just lays dormant lays asymptomatic people could continue exercising and not even know just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know i have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge this is one email per day for five days learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury the sign up link is in the show notes so fill in your details and i'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow that they have this, but it's only until these training errors occur where the structure has said, that's it, I've had enough, that's too much, let me start producing pain in order to um, let you know that we've overdone things. And if anyone's listening, they're probably thinking this is the same uh, advice, the same education that's similar to any other running-related injury. But I think it's important to know because there are some... I guess, misconceptions out there around FAI and labral tears. And it can be quite fearful, quite stark if you get a scan because you have hip pain, they reveal, oh, you have bony overgrowth, it's impinging on this and it's causing this labrum to tear. It can be very fearful and cause a lot of really um, startling language, particularly in the the scan findings. Um, but aside from that at the moment, because we know that it's so prevalent in the asymptomatic population. We do know that hip pain in general is um, a little bit more common in runners. And so if someone does start developing hip pain, it doesn't get better and they end up having an MRI and it may potentially be an incidental finding that someone says, oh, look, you have this um, femoral acetabular impingement. Maybe that's the, the sign of your pain. Maybe that's the cause of your pain. I think it might actually be helpful in this particular part of the conversation to talk about what the symptoms actually are so that we can correlate symptoms with the actual pathology rather than um, someone falsely identifying the cause of their pain as this FAI.
1: Right, right. So, and I think um, it's also important to note that sometimes the symptoms of FAI, labral tear, can also present similar to a stress fracture of the hip. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first thing is making sure, you know, if, if you the person has um, deep groin pain, sharp groin pain, and they, you know, it's getting worse, it's causing altered mechanics, so they may be limping, or after you run, you know, you're in worse pain. I think the, the, the first thing is you want to rule out any kind of a bone stress injury because um, it's actually – common in people that have a stress fracture that they, their hip also has, you know, underlying hip impingement and labral tear. So, I think um, just right away kind of making sure that there's nothing serious or like, you know, what we call in, in the physio world like a red flag type of bone stress injury happening. And um symptoms more related to hip impingement, so somebody may have deep groin pain. Their pain may be worse in sitting or like repeated flexion. So exercises that involve bringing the knee up towards the chest, flexing the hip. Um And then, you know, this is a physio term that we use, but oftentimes people will kind of make this C sign when you say like, hey, where does your hip hurt? So it's where they take their thumb and fingers and kind of make this C shape around the outside of the hip. And, um, you know, the symptoms of labral tear and the bony hip impingement often overlap. And like we said, so it's common for people to have both. And, you know, truly, like, still the gold standard actually to identifying these changes is actually like a hip arthroscopy. So, you know, when they are like open up the hip joint and are actually looking at it. So that's another reason why we just have to be cautious with interpreting the findings of imaging Um, because again you know there can be things on imaging that you know may not actually be the case when you know they're in there actually looking at the hip joint
0: Hmm. A, a few things to really repeat there is you said it's very common for it to be deep and very common to be sharp groin pain so deep sharp groin pain and when I talk with a lot of runners who think they have this particular condition, like a lot of times they point to say they rub along the outside of the hip, they rub like along their glutes or they rub along um, their ITB or something. And it, it, it's quite superficial. It feels like the symptoms are closer to the skin, which might indicate something else. Um, but that's particularly what you're saying like it's very very common in this condition for it to be deep it for it to feel like it's very hard to locate because it's so deep and yet it'd be quite a sharp, a sharp groin pain which is increased with things like sitting and increased with things like um, high levels of flexion like driving your knee towards your chest those sort of things
1: right right
0: okay and um, like you said before it's can be brought on by training habits, like an increase, like doing an abrupt change, doing too much too soon. Um, And is there anything else in regards to what might cause this outside of running? Because I do know that, like, say, triathletes might listen to this um, episode or, you know, people have life outside of running. Is there any other conditions outside of running that might lead to this um, pathology becoming symptomatic?
1: Well, I think one thing... That does make this a tricky condition. Is I think that it's it's very multifactorial. So I think it's hard to kind of narrow it down. You know, as there's a specific thing that causes it to become painful, which again also makes it hard for um, I think hard to treat it because you really have to from the clinician aspect. Uh, clinicians really have to individualize the treatment for the for the person that they're working with, because um, you're right. You know, even if you look at different sports, so when I'm helping somebody with this condition and I'm treating, you know, a runner, there may be different considerations. You know, if I'm treating a hockey player, just based on the demands that the sport requires or the positions that the hip has to get into. So I think that um, for for triathletes, I think, you know, an important thing to, to note may be the position on the bike. So, yes, the aero position can be a pain-provoking position if the hip is in a lot of flexion. And I think that's probably, you know, the – the biggest thing to consider when looking at a triathlete versus a runner um, would be, like, the biking position. But there there are a lot of things you can do to work through that. You know, it's actually funny. Because of my hip, you know, that's how I got into also doing triathlons. And, you know, it was adding in the swimming and biking that really helped keep my training more well-rounded. And I think for the biking, you know, it took several months, but I was able to make modifications so that my hip actually doesn't bother me when I'm biking. So I think it just kind of depends on, you know, really looking at what other sports or activities or hobbies or even things related to someone's job and what positions does the hip need to get in and, um, you know, seeing how can you modify or change those while the hip is in an, a really painful state to make it feel better.
0: Makes sense because if you look at the action of a runner, they don't really go through a lot of hip range of movement. They they extend their hip and they don't really flex their hip too far. Maybe if they're doing hills or doing sprints maybe, but um, in regards to like impinging on the bones, it requires quite a, a large range to do that. But then you talk about a triathlete or you talk about a cyclist or someone who's spending potentially some time in that aero position, that's extreme ranges of hip flexion. And if, if, if a training habit or a training error exists within that, I guess, aero position, then if they were an asymptomatic FAI population, that might start becoming painful if it's, if it's overdone, but like you say, it's a fine balance because maybe doing triathlons actually helps distribute the load with different disciplines throughout the week. So you're not just overloading the hip in one particular discipline. You're actually, you know, offering different ranges, different strengths, different levels of fitness with different hip demands. So maybe that distribution throughout the week is actually helpful for the condition.
1: Right, right. And I think the other concept that I'll use a lot for people is just kind of looking at like risk versus reward. So in the the sense of like the triathlete who wants to get in that, you know, intense arrow position, um, it may be a tough thing to think about. But in terms of looking at like, what's going to ultimately in the long run, be best for your hip, um, I think unless you're, you know, a professional triathlete and this is your job, but for people like me where it's a hobby, um, I think looking at like, you know, the reward of being in that arrow position and maximizing performance and speed, is that worth like the risk of, you know, having your hip hurt worse or increasing your hip pain? So it's kind of how I approach things. So like, yeah, for, for, me with my bike. So I actually um, have a road bike, a specialized road bike, and then I have aero bars on the road bike. And just that setup has kind of been optimal for my hip. So I guess I am sacrificing some speed on the bike, but to me, it's worth it because I can complete, you know, hours of biking and not have any hip pain or pinching.
0: Makes sense, yeah. So you're just making those modifications in order to reduce the likelihood of overload in a particular repetition. Um, If you've seen a lot of this, if you've worked with this population quite a lot and you've done the research and you're familiar with the literature, are there any common misconceptions, um, particularly with this condition, maybe around how it's diagnosed or the rehab or like treatment mistakes that people might, like you might commonly commonly come across?
1: Yes, so I think that um, I think that one of the things in terms of the diagnosis, I think when it's presented to someone as like, oh, your, your hip is hurting, because you have this labral tear, and you have the hip impingement, I think, that's tough because sometimes the person will kind of get that in their mind that that's why they're having pain, but really then once they have a, a consult with a, a physical therapist and we do our exam, which includes looking at their strength, their movement coordination, looking at the, like you said, correlation between their symptoms and how they're moving. Um, Oftentimes, you know, we identify things that have to do with their strength, their movement coordination, and their their movement patterns. And you know, there's kind of this phrase that I use a lot when I'm teaching um, our clinicians in our residency, is that you want to like diagnose from the outside in, meaning like rule out a red flag bone stress injury, but then actually like treat the hip from the outside in or diagnose from the inside out, treat from the outside in. So meaning like, you know, oftentimes when you, you start strengthening the muscles and loading the hip tendons, you can see a dramatic decrease in their pain. So I think, you know, one, one thing to be aware of is just, you know, not jumping to the conclusion that it's just a labral tear and hip impingement causing the pain. And then in terms of, treatment. So I think, I think now that there's more research out there, I'm seeing it less often, but I think, you know, like five years ago, it was really common that a lot of people with anterior hip pain were overstretching the front of the hip and kind of getting that result where like it felt good in the short term, but then, you know, long term was actually making it worse. And so I think, you know, just identifying that, um your physical therapist like that's what we do so you know going to see a physical therapist and really having it it assessed you know is it a true muscle tightness issue or often what i find is people will have hypertonicity so that's where the muscle is really guarded and and feels tight but there's actually not a true muscle length deficit So, I think just being aware, um, you know, not overstretching the hip. And then the other thing is, I think that hips with FAI and labral tears can benefit from manual joint hip mobilizations. But the clinician needs to recognize that oftentimes for these people, you're not, the aim is not to increase range of motion, right? Because they're going to have bony limitations, but you can get what we call neurophysiological effects so helping decrease the fear of bringing the hip into different positions and so in that sense the the manual therapy can help decrease the pain I just think that clinicians also have to explain it in a way where you know they're not telling people like I'm mobilizing your hip because I'm gonna significantly improve your hip rotation
0: Mm. One thing I wanted to talk on when I was listening to your like a, you on a previous podcast and you're talking about FAI and the presentation, the diagnosis, the the misconceptions that are out there, I kind of drew a a correlation with osteoarthritis and say osteoarthritis of the knee and someone if we just take a runner, they overdo the overdo, they do too much too soon, they've ran too fast or too much of an abrupt change and they get knee pain and then they get scans and there shows mild to moderate osteoarthritis and they direct, this is the cause of their pain. And so they've often told, um, hopefully less likely these days, but told that, you know, it's a wear and tear issue that it's going to eventually wear out if you continue to, um, if you continue along this trend, there's going to be more and more breakdown of the cartilage and then you're eventually going to need a replacement. And it's a very, um, they draw a very clear line. It's almost like there it's like a car where it has limited mileage. It has a finite amount of kilometers before the parts start wearing down and the parts need to be replaced. When in fact, what we know now with osteoarthritis is that you know, exercise is very, very good for development of cartilage and preserving the strength and preserving the, um, for uh, actually preventing, uh, worsening osteoarthritis down the track. And we're talking like, I heard you talk about FAI and people overdo things in there, or they have some sort of training error they then have hip pain, they then get scans and the scans show, okay, you have this bony overgrowth, which is the cause of your pain. And it's a very, um, it's very hard for people to wrap their mind around the cause of being a training overload because it is this bony overgrowth. It's something there structurally that can be very, very hard to go away or very hard to manage in their eyes unless they have surgery unless they shave away this bone and allow range of movement and can be this very um mechanical focused rather than the other side which is more of like a strength and load management sort of focus do you see that much these days or is that just a an archaic kind of old-term solution that people have gone to
1: no i mean i think um I think that I I still do see that. So I think, you know, you're you're in Australia where uh, anyone who knows me knows I'm such a huge fan of Australia because you guys have such great hip researchers there. Everybody involved in the, you know, out of La Trobe and Queensland and, um, you know, especially Jo Kemp. She's one of my, you know, idols, I would say, because of the great work she's done with FAI and Label Tears. And so I think, um, I do think that it's, it is kind of the approach is different, you know, maybe in Australia versus here. Cause I do see here a lot in the U S where people do find, have the imaging findings and are often told they need surgery. And, um, you know, that actually happened to me. And like I said, this is when I was more of a younger clinician and didn't know as much as I know now, but I was also told that by a surgeon, like, you have this labral tear, you sh- you need this surgery, you need to stop running, you're going to get hip arthritis, which could lead to a hip replacement. And that, you know, did send me down this, like, deep spiral of depression because it was kind of like you know, one minute I'm able to run and the next one I'm being told like, you know, one of my favorite things in the world I can no longer do. And so, but now, you know, having gone through that and kind of fighting out of, out of that darkness and realizing that I could get back to running without surgery, without causing further damage of my hip, um, I have a lot to reflect on. I think the thing with that is that, you know, people should be aware that there is still a lot more that's needed to be studied when it comes to the hip. So basically, you know, like I think that when it comes to osteoarthritis, to my knowledge, you know, the way that I've heard about it from some of the leading, you know, researchers in the world and also in Australia is that Actually, the the biggest indicator is kind of your genetics. You know, some people just have a genetic predisposition that they have a higher chance of ending up with osteoarthritis. And so it it also depends on, too, the how big the hip impingement is. And, you know, that kind of gets into, like, the nitty-gritty of the imaging and the radiology aspect of it. But I think I'd like to think of it as a spectrum. So there's, like, people that have say, for example, like a hockey goalie that has, like, severe hip hip impingement, cam morphology for their position, their maybe their job, if they're a professional athlete, they have to be able to get into, like, repeated extreme ranges of motion. So they may be somebody who may need the surgery, may benefit from the surgery to allow them to do their, their job, which is to play the sport. And then there's people like me where you know, my imaging findings didn't show that I had a significant CAM morphology. And so it's still unknown if hips like mine will end up to go to go on to get, you know, hip osteoarthritis. So I think that there's still a lot that we have to know about, you know, who's going to get worse. And um, I think one thing that, you know, is known is that if you have cartilage defects. Also with labral turn FAI, yes, your hip is at risk of getting osteoarthritis um, more so than somebody who has labral turn FAI but doesn't have a cartilage defect. So that can be a helpful thing to to, um, consider when looking at long-term management. Um, And actually, you know, Jo had said this in one of her presentations, like for and that scenario, when you have a hip with a labral tear, FAI, and, and a cartilage or chondral defect, you should actually kind of treat it as if they already have, like, early OA, meaning emphasize keeping active, keeping the hip mobile, um, sustainable training, that sort of thing.
0: Mm. That can be very helpful and, like, can be totally different advice compared to someone who says you just need surgery. I'm, uh, I'm curious... When you were told that when you had the scans and you had a surgeon saying you might need surgery and you might need to give up on the sports that you love, and you said that you found yourself in a a deep depression, when did that turn around? When did you find out that maybe surgery isn't the option you can actually treat this with um, exercise, strengthening, and just load management?
1: Yeah, so I would say for a period of probably like five to six months, I actually did stop Running and this was right when I was also in in a physical therapy residency in orthopedics um, in Baltimore. So I was at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and so it was a pivotal point in my career. You know, with the intensity of the residency program, and so I had stopped running for about six months, and I was just—I actually was planning to have the surgery that summer. You know, it was kind of still in that mindset of, like, I have this problem with my hip, and it needs to be fixed, and so that was kind of my mindset was, just get through the year, and I was going to have the surgery, and, um, but then I think, you know, things started to change when I got, like, a second opinion, and they offered, a, like, a different surgery, you know, um, like, they had mentioned adding in a microfracture, which is a really... Intense and tough recovery for the hip. And so that's kind of when I started thinking, huh, maybe surgery is not the answer for me. And luckily, one of my mentors who is a well known physical therapist in terms of, you know, treating people with persistent pain and, and looking at the psychological aspects, like stepped in. His name is Mark Shepard. And he, he was really that clinician that you know was able to change my perspective about my hip you know and and he said let me evaluate your hip let's do formal physical therapy and after that and he noticed all of the things that could be changed such as my you know increasing the strength of my hip increasing the single leg control and working on more well-rounded training, so adding in more strength training, more biking and swimming. And he really helped me get back to running. You know, and I remember him asking me, like, well, what's holding you back from running? Why aren't you running? And my answer, I mean, I was really, like, catastrophizing at that point, but was because I was so afraid that I was going to make this worse. I was afraid I was going to damage it. And he said, well, you know, that if even the top researchers don't yet know if that's the case, you know, we don't, and now, you know, years later, we, we, like you're saying, we know that actually running an activity is helpful for, for these kinds of hips. Um He really challenged me to like be my own experiment. And, um and I think that having that, that belief in me really helped. It really changed my thoughts about my hip. And, And it was a very gradual and methodical progression back to running that involved, you know, I think it takes a team to help these people. And, and I'm really grateful that I had a great group of people on my team, which included, you know, the physical therapist. I then worked with a strength and conditioning coach. I also worked with a sports psychologist who really helped me with the, the fears about my hip and kind of the uncertainty. Um, And then Getting back to running, I worked with performance coaches, um, Chris Johnson, Nathan Carlson, and Joel Sackgast.
0: I'm glad that you had so many resources and so many people on your rehab team to help you through that because I could easily see a recreational runner have the same start as you and the same pain, the same scans, the same like initial suggestions and just go through that path without... Um, like you say, being your own experiment, trying other things and seeking out second opinions and having that, that rehab team. So I'm glad you you've kind of had that insight and you've seen the, um, the benefits of it. I wanted to get through to some, um, questions that came in. One was from Chitra and she asks, um, can a hip impingement and label fraying? So she had an MRI that diagnosed label impingement and uh label fraying and a hip impingement, um, And then she later developed proximal hamstring tendinopathy. So she was asking, can this condition cause other issues such as PHT?
1: Yes. So I I do think that someone can have proximal hamstring tendinopathy. I think that that happens when you have weakness of the hip. So, you know, weakness of the flexors, adductors, the gluteals, and then the hamstring is really having to do A lot of the work for the hip and then over time that can lead to irritation of that proximal tendon and then which can then cause this inhibition leading to hamstring weakness so i think that is something that can happen i think it has to do with the hip starting to compensate and um which in terms of treatment is another reason why it's really important for these people that you're exercising all the muscles of the hip you know adductors flexors gluteals,
0: hamstrings, deep rotators. Mm. And that's um, a good good advice for PhD clients anyway, is to strengthen the hamstring, but also strengthen the muscles around the hip can be really important. So um, like you say, you kind of treat outwards in. And so you start with all the tendons, the muscles and building up all that control and then f- then you know, working your way more inwards. Um, thanks for that answer. Charlie also asks, uh, "What is the risk of making it worse? Like, if if running does cause a pain, is there uh, much threat, or is it ill-advised to continue running through the pain? If so, is it causing more damage?"
1: That's a good question. So, I think that it kind of comes down to. You know soreness rules that we utilize with other injuries as well. So I think before someone, let's say for example, someone gets diagnosed with FAI labral tear, they have hip pain, um, and they are trying to decide can they hold off on running or um, can they can they keep running. So I think that um, the first thing is if you have altered mechanics with just walking, you know you need to dial back. Um, the other thing is needing to um, kind of really be able to tolerate walking. So I'll have people, say, you know, I'll t- tell them, can you tolerate 45 minutes to an hour of fast-paced fitness walking? Because that's really a prerequisite to being able to tolerate, like, the loads of running on the hip. And so I think if you utilize those soreness rules where you're paying attention to altered mechanics, the other thing is, like, 24 hours later, the pain should be back to baseline. And then if it's not, I think that's a sign you need to dial back. So I think the hard part about this condition and getting back to running is that it's you have to continually kind of reassess how you're doing. So, um, which I think is hard because people often want to just get that green light to to go run but this is a condition where like if you don't gradually progress your mileage and your pace and you just you know go out and and do back-to-back long runs and really fast runs too soon you can kind of get stuck in this cycle of flaring up the hip
0: is there Uh, so what you're saying is there's no, it's more of like symptom dependent, um, flare ups rather than they're running a risk of structurally any increase in damage taking place.
1: Right. I think, I think that people have to be aware though, that, you know, the, the weaker your hip is, there is going to be more stress placed on the joint and the bones. So keeping that in mind. But I think if you have somebody who has really like put in the work and, and their hip is strong that, and they approach training in a sensible way that you are not going to make it worse.
0: Um, It's funny. Like I think the, the listeners of this podcast, especially if they've listened to other episodes in the past, like you're getting all these, expert therapists on to discuss all these different conditions and the advice is the exact same for every single condition it's um, yeah focusing on load management it's paying attention to symptoms it's making sure that if it is elevated level of symptoms during exercise we want to make sure that it's low levels of soreness and that it's settled down within 24 hours like that's like load management 101 for a lot of running related injuries and um, it's sometimes encouraging to know it's sometimes encouraging to have different guests on and have this exact same advice come back because that kind of solidifies our, our thoughts and our understandings of these conditions sometimes that repetition is really needed um, so I'm glad I'm re- really happy that we're like this FAI labral tears are just f- they, they fit within the same umbrella of load management and those particular um, management skills Right, right. If I'm almost 100% convinced that I have like an asymptomatic FAI because I, I remember doing tests when I was a physio um, studying and – we did that same, like you lie on your back, you bring your knee up to 90 degrees and you rotate the hip and you have someone rotate the hip. My right side, it just locks up straight away without, it's just like a hard feel, just won't go anywhere, just locks up immediately. And I do feel a little bit of, um, like deep hip, um, soreness when people do that. And like to say last week, I had this gym installed in my house and I was doing like, um, installing treadmills and gym equipment. It was a lot of deep squatting, unloading boxes, putting together like Allen keys and screws and just like attaching um, all these different parts. And like a day of like deep squatting, my hip had this like deep hip soreness for a couple of days, it quickly settled. So I'm almost convinced that I have FAI and in most cases throughout my running throughout the week, it's just asymptomatic, just lays completely dormant. So I may I may be a part of that 70%. <laughs> if there's, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, to give you also perspective, like uh, my story is actually not that unique when you, when you start to hear of other people with FAI and labral tears, you know, and two of my best friends, you know, like a couple of years after I went through this, two of my best friends um, ha- got, who are also marathon runners got diagnosed with the exact same thing, you know? So it's kind of like the more people you talk to, it seems like it, the more people you're going to meet that also have FAI in a labral tear. So join yeah. the club. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice club, but it seems to be in the majority. Like if you say that the uh, incidental findings or like these scans, asymptomatic populations around 70%, that's that's the majority of the population out there. And so you if... I do know some runners who are injured, they're quick to go get scans. For some reason, it seems to be their first point of call is to get an MRI or, you know, to see what's going on because they think very mechanically to see if there's um, anything structurally going on. And so the likelihood of them coming back with an FAI diagnosis is extremely high. And so um, I say this in most cases, you, you do want to correlate symptoms with findings as well. And even if those findings do come back with FAI, FAI or osteoarthritis or something, make sure that, you know, surgery isn't the straightaway first option. You want to make sure that you treat it conservatively to start with, especially if it's um, like a fir- the first time you've had it, particularly if it's presented with this training error, because all it just might take is some load modification and some strengthening, and then you never see it again, maybe. Um, but like you said, there can be some situations where you know it just doesn't go away. you do you treat it conservatively and it just doesn't settle and you're also more likely to like your livelihood relies on a deep squat rotation like you say that hockey goalie example um, where surgery might be that option for you. but we do need to be very careful and be very well educated on this particular um, condition and all the options that you have available before seeking out or choosing that um, surgical path. Right, right. Is there any other um, things that we haven't discussed? Is there um, any other advice around management, any other advice around treatment that we haven't discussed already?
1: I think um, perhaps kind of delving into like the time, you know, it takes to kind of... um, treat this condition, because I think that that's something, too, that makes it a little bit tougher than, say, um, you know, other kinds of injuries. Although, I guess you could say it's similar to teninopathy in that it takes months. So, something I think that they have studied, too, that, you know, in um, looking at people who went on to have surgery, looking at the outcomes, that it actually had, their outcome had nothing to do with You know, the size of the labral tear, it actually had to do with their expectations of how long it was going to take to recover. So, what that means is that, you know, as clinicians educating patients that this is going to take, you know, six months to maybe a year, maybe even longer um, for them to really get, you know, close to 90%, 100% better. And even then, I hesitate to say 100% because you know, even if you have surgery or you don't have surgery, like zero out of 10 pain 100% of the time is really never the goal. Um, And so I just think that, you know, kind of being cautious with what your expectations are in terms of how long it's going to take. So uh, for runners listening where like maybe they're thinking, okay, I was told, you know, six weeks of physical therapy and this should be better. But the reality is you're actually looking more at like six months of physical therapy. And the reason is because like we said, it, it's so multifactorial and there's so many training and voting considerations you have to, you have to look at. So I think just kind of emphasizing that, that, you know, um, it takes a while to get better, but it's, it's worth it to kind of stick to the the path and not search for any like quick fixes that sound really appealing.
0: Again, it comes back to education. I think just being well-informed and recovery timeframes and expectations are just a part of that education piece, just making sure you have you make that informed decision making sure that you truly understand what it takes throughout that recovery process and i like how you talk about the the zero pain being kind of unrealistic i talk about that in a lot of chronic tendon issues like people say how long until I'm pain running pain free and i say well you could go back to running six marathons a year and still have a one out of 10 pain every now and then, um, that is extremely successful. That is like getting you back to everything that you love doing, but there's still like some symptoms lying around here and there, um, setting that expectation and set like, if you, if symptoms remain really, really low, and stay low, not zero, but stay low. But your load increases, and you go get back to competing in races, or you get back to running a certain mileage or a certain speed. Then that's counted as a success throughout the recovery. Um, so very good to lay down those expectations and have that education. Would Would you agree with what what I was saying about the the load um, load increasing symptoms staying the same, or do you do you change your education at all?
1: No, no, I agree. I agree.
0: Great, and I think.
1: Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one other thing for people to realize, too, um, is that it is a tough thing to go through. I think there was, you know, some statistic that um, Mike Raymond, who's a PT out of Duke, who did his PhD on FAI, he would always say that, you know, the average person sees three to four healthcare providers before kind of actually finding out what is causing their hip pain. And so for For the runners listening to the podcast, I think just recognizing, like, it can be, it can take a a toll on your mental health. And so um, don't underestimate, you know, the power that working with a psychologist or sports psychologist can have on the recovery. I think that's something that really helped me. And I think um, it's something I often recommend to a lot of my patients because I think it's a crucial part of recovery.
0: And you have been um, gracious enough to leave me some social media links um, before the interview. So I have your Instagram, PT performance as well as the website under the same name. Um, and anything else? I see your email here. Do you want me to include that in the show notes as well?
1: Sure. Yeah. That would great. be great.
0: I'm sure if anyone has any questions about FAI or label tears um, after listening to this episode, they'll be happy to, um, if they do have any other questions or comments or, um, queries, then, uh, I'll definitely leave your, your email in the show notes. Uh, any other final takeaways before we wrap up this episode?
1: No, I think, uh, I think it was, I I think it's going to be really helpful for people listening. I think it was a great discussion and thanks for having me on the podcast. And, um, yeah, if anybody has any questions or comments or needs guidance with their hips, please don't hesitate to reach out
0: who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your run smarter path.